Eight months ago, in February 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine. The West united to support Ukraine, but as winter approaches, the end of the war seems nowhere near. Recently, President Joe Biden said at the UN General Assembly, Like you, the United States wants this war to end on just terms, on terms we all signed up for, that you cannot seize a nation's territory by force, that the only country standing in the way of that is Russia. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken, in a 60-minute interview, said, There are no talks because Russia has not demonstrated any willingness in this moment to engage in meaningful discussions. If and when that changes, we will do everything we can to support uh, a diplomatic process. To understand where we are today with the war in Ukraine, we have with us Wolf Piccoli, who is co-president of Teneo and responsible for co-managing Teneo's global political risk platform and for the specific coverage of Europe. Welcome. Thank you for being here with me today. Um, I would like to ask you, it's been eight months since the beginning of the invasion of uh, Ukraine. Where are we today? Um, we are at the point where there is no end in sight um, to the conflict. So most likely spillover into 2023. Um, we also have seen Putin uh, taking two significant decisions recently which are two major inflection points. The first one is annexation of occupied territories in Ukraine, and second, the mobilization of reservists. Uh, with the first one, it took away from uh, anything that could have been a matter of bargain at the diplomatic table. With the second one, it kind of changed the social contract that he had at home. Um, so for the time being, we should just expect a continuation of the fighting, which might slow down a bit because of the winter. And then the question is here where the Russians will be uh, once the spring comes. So, according to your opinion, the discussion that uh, there is right now that we sh- the West should look for a diplomatic solution is out of the table, if I understand well? That's correct, yes. There is absolutely nothing to, to negotiate. The Ukrainians have made very clear that they are unwilling to negotiate with Putin as long as he's in, uh, in office. Uh, the annexation of the four occupied regions in Ukraine has now turned them into... Uh, allegedly uh, territory of Russia. According to Russian constitution, Russia cannot give away territory. So that has made potential negotiation even more meaningless. Um, the fi- and the, on the Ukrainian side, they feel very strong. Uh, they are most likely launching our counteroffensive in the area of Kershon. Um, so as of now, there is absolute zero signs of um, anything that resembles uh, peace talks, negotiation and so on. So uh, Putin hasn't been strong in the battlefield, in the ground, uh, but he has um, increased his rhetoric when it comes, for example, to nuclear weapons. Is that something that worries you? Um, It is certainly a a matter of concern. Uh, Maybe not in the immediate period. I think he will, first of all, uh, want to see whether the measure that he has been announcing over the last few weeks, the mobilization, this new t- terror campaign that we will discuss maybe later in uh, in the podcast, um, the martial law that was announced yesterday and the other measures that were announced in Russia proper, where they will pay off. 
the risk comes the moment in which he realizes that his room for maneuver has basically become non-existent. As of now, the Russian, at best, can try to hold the line in eastern Ukraine and in southern Ukraine. Certainly, they have no capacity, especially in terms of manpower, logistics, uh, commander control, to launch a new offensive. Um, so the moment of truth here will be once Putin realizes this. Uh, and again, when we talk about nuclear, um, you know, we need to be very cautious here about which kind of nuclear we are talking about. There are all sorts of ways that it can be employed here, potentially just as a kind of symbolic um, or a, a terror kind of threat more than anything that can change the balance of power on the ground. Uh, you mentioned the terror campaign. Uh, I guess you're uh, talking about the drones used. Uh, so that's another thing we should discuss. There are drones used uh, on the ground right now. Uh, it's been said that uh, there are drones from Iran. Um, how this is important? What does it change on the ground, uh, on the battlefield? And when it comes to the geopolitical context, why this is important? I think on the ground actually doesn't change much at all. It's not something that will provide the Russians with any significant uh, victory on the ground. It, but it does create terror because the civilian population is being targeted randomly across the wall of Ukraine, not just Kyiv. We also have seen a campaign targeting infrastructure, civilian infrastructure, specifically energy infrastructure. Um, so potentially the game of the Russian is trying to uh, freeze the Ukrainians during the winter. Um, 30% of Ukraine energy infrastructure has been affected by this uh, targeting. Uh, 90% of Ukrainian wind, uh, wind power capabilities have been destroyed so far in the war. Um, and in terms of the wider picture, the, the interesting story is that, yes, the Russians are using these cheap kamikaze drones that were developed by Iran. Uh, they are using um, hundreds of them so far in the last couple of days with missed success. These are rudimentary uh, drones. Technology is not very sophisticated, but they can create terror and they're cheap. Uh, the question for me would be whether this Iranian involvement in the war on the side of Russia which allows Iranian to test the drone and potentially further refine the drone program would actually drag into the war also Israel, meaning Israel so far has been very cautious in terms of supporting Ukraine, mainly because it's got a close relationship with Russia. Ukrainians have already asked uh, uh, the Israelis for uh, more uh, for, for military support, specifically anti-drone support. So the question will be whether Israel decides that the risk is that Iran is developing its program by testing it on the ground in Ukraine, and therefore it's time to provide help, military help, uh, to uh, to Ukraine. So well, the one thing to look is what will happen with Iran in, in, and Israel. The other thing we have to look, uh, and I would like to ask you, we have midterm elections. There seems to, it's very probable, it's going to be a change in the Congress of the U.S. There are already voices from the Republicans saying that we cannot give a, a white check to Ukraine. What do you think will happen there? What's the issue? Uh, so election always create uncertainty. We have seen now in Italy, we saw some uncertainty either before the summer with the French presidential and parliamentary election. Now we have the midterms in the US. In terms of the outcome, I think the Republicans are set to take the control over the House. Um, the Senate, I think, is a 50-50. Until recently, the feeling was that Democrats were able to keep it. Now I think it's a bit more kind of uh, on, on, um, at risk. 
the implication would be that if the House is taken over by Republicans, um, uh, basically delivering aid, economic and military aid to Ukraine could become more complicated because several Republican figures, as you mentioned, are reluctant to give what they call the white check to, to Zelensky. Um, which, to, uh, which raises one point here. The West is deeply involved in this war. We are providing military aid, lethal military aid. We are providing economic support. We are providing intelligence. Nobody in the West here has defined what is victory. What does it mean of victory in this war, basically? Does it mean decapitating Russia um, capabilities to, um, to extend its power beyond this border? Does it mean regime change in Moscow? Does it mean going back to the borders of the 23rd of February? Or does it mean going back to the border 2014? That kind of debate has not started. So far, Western policymakers have been hiding behind the idea that the Ukrainians will decide, which is a very honorable position to hold. But on the other hand, while the West shares lots of interest with Ukraine, the West has got also interest well beyond Ukraine. Think about China, for example, here. So that, that issue, I think, uh, especially if we go through a tough winter, um, especially in Europe, the issue of uh, talks, the issue of putting pressure on Zelensky could come back. So the winter is, uh, we have to see what's going to happen in the winter. You're worried about how the West will uh, keep the support during winter, if I understand well. Um, but is Putin challenged from inside right now at all? Is he pressured? It's very difficult to say. Putin has taken, he was forced here to declare this mobilization to move the reservists, even if he didn't want to. Because the social contract prevailing in Russia under Putin for the last 20 years plus was very simple. The population remains agnostic towards politics and Putin doesn't bother you. Uh, to put it in a nutshell here. Well, now Putin is knocking at your door if you are Russia and is taking away your father, your son, your cousin and throwing them into a battlefield in Ukraine. So this has raised the stakes for Putin domestically. There is also an economic impact that eventually, especially in 2023, will manifest itself uh, uh, and will start biting more aggressively because of the sanction and also the exit of lots of uh, Western multinationals from Russia here. Um, is he a risk now? I don't think he is. We haven't seen significant cracks in the system. Very difficult to read what is happening within the Kremlin at this point. Public opinion is still with... Um, with um, with Putin, apparently, even if we have to take uh, um, opinion polls with a big pinch of salt when they're coming from Russia here. But what we know that this kind of regime, when they start falling, they fall very, very quickly. But we are not there. Um, Putin doesn't seem to have a lot of support. We've seen China being very cautious when it comes to its involvement to the invasion of Ukraine. The West so far is quite united. He does has uh, some support from Turkey and Putin um, tries to help Erdogan, Erdogan who has the elections uh, in April or May. Uh, what does he do to help uh, Erdogan, Putin? How is this relationship? It's, it's a very transactional relationship between the two sides, even if they have very diverging interests on a few fronts. Let's remember here that Turkey is providing drones to Ukraine, which have been used very successfully by the Ukrainians to target military assets of Russia on the ground here. Uh, meanwhile, 
uh, Putin and Erdogan enjoy a close personal relationship. I think Putin is invested in making sure that Erdogan is re-elected next year. So we have seen recently Russia depositing around $5 billion into uh, the Turkish Central Bank in relation to the nuclear power plant that the Russians are um, building in Turkey, which has helped uh, Erdogan domestically in terms of stabilizing the lira, at least temporarily here. Turkey is now asking to defer the payment for the gas that is still buying from Russia. It's around 40% of the natural gas that Turkey uses. Um, they are trying to defer the payment to, to 2024. Uh, the gas bill for Turkey um, so far this year has been around $60 billion, so a significant amount of money. So even if Erdogan is able to get a deferred payment for Alphafet, suddenly Erdogan would have available $25, $30 billion that they can use between now and, the, and June 2023 when the elections are expected to take place. Uh, you're an expert also in Turkey, you know very well Turkey. Uh, what else Erdogan does to help himself for the elections? Uh, well, we have seen for a long time a significant domestic crackdown. So in terms of uh, targeting opposition politicians with out outright harassment, if not throwing them in jail, specifically politicians from the pro-Kurdish HDP. We have seen uh, changes to the electoral system. Uh, we have seen a crackdown on the media, most recently social media, which a law with a law that was passed over the past, uh, past few days, uh, uh, that will entail significant penalties for people uh, providing what Erdogan has called fake news. The legislation is written in a very vague way, so it will be open to interpretation there. Um, he has been also using foreign policy, mainly in terms of rhetoric, to try to create uh, domestic support, so threatening military operation in northern Syria to target the Kurds, and also you have seen uh, the, the threat against uh, Greece as well, including, for example, also um, threat to the US in the past. So it's basically a foreign policy that is becoming more and more in, in connected with domestic the domestic imperatives of Erdogan. Um, I would like to wrap it up here because the main discussion is about uh, Russia and the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, the way I understand it, it's uh, we're nowhere near an end to this war and uh, we're uh, about to see how the winter will go and discuss again, let's say, in April to see where we're heading, something like that as far as I understand it. That's correct. And I think what is important to know that this is the most dangerous phase of the war since it started more than eight months ago. And generally, a war that lasts around eight months has got one in three chances to last between two and five years and one in three chances to last less than a year. Right now, I think I will think I will suggest that maybe two and five years does looks more realistic than less than a year. So you mean dangerous in the sense that it's going to drag on for a while, not that it's going to escalate, uh, escalate in other areas? Uh, danger in terms of dragging on, but also danger because I think the Russian year will, as, as they are facing more difficulties, difficulties on the battleground in eastern Ukraine and south Ukraine, will adopt more terror tactics. So we will see more indiscriminate targeting of civilians across the wall of Ukraine. 
We have seen mobilization, more mobilization domestically in Russia in terms of manpower, but now also with the martial law, we need to understand what actually means for businesses, for example. So that is why it's becoming, it's, it's, this is the most dangerous phase. Do you fear it, it might spread in other countries in the region? It could be an option for Putin here to create unrest in other areas of Europe to try to distract the Europeans and to show that Russia matters. The Balkans, for example, Transnistria, for example, where the Russians have 1,500 soldiers since 1992. Um, so, so there are areas where potential there is a risk of cyber attacks. We have seen the blowing up of the gas pipelines already uh, in the Baltic Sea. So there are all sorts of range of measures here that Russia can employ to um, exercise further pressure on the, on the Europeans and the West. Um, I will uh, keep it here until here. Thank you very much for your time. And I hope to be able to speak to you again on April to see where we are at the time. Thank you very Pleasure. much, Mr. Wolf.